I was excited to see a different part of the world and I was excited to help other people. I mean, the whole mission of the Peace Corps is to go and serve basically like the US in another country and kind of like work in development. And all of those were really appealing kind of things. I would work with like the, the village health volunteers on some of their kind of public health campaigns. And I also worked on a, an agriculture project that helped link all of these kind of like small shareholder farmers to larger supply chains. Yeah, so some of the hardest working people in the world are also some of the poorest. Having grown up in New Mexico, where hard work is like big value and it's something that in the U.S. we've got this like hustle culture and just like work really hard and you know, success will come. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Beth Ann Lopez is the co-founder and CEO of DocuSan, a Vietnamese health tech startup that expands access to healthcare through its marketplace of thousands of healthcare providers who offer online and offline care and D2C doctor-guided home testing treatment, and monitoring packages. Before Docusan, Beth was a market launcher and the director of public affairs for SwipeRx and holds a master's in public health from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I really enjoyed this chat and we cover a lot in here. From what made her dream of becoming a doctor as a kid growing up in New Mexico, how she later ended up ditching med school for public policy, and then ended up at a startup all the way in Southeast Asia what it was like living in a remote area with zero Wi-Fi in Cambodia, tough times and anxiety as a founder, and real fundraising tips that you can use. And of course, so much more. Hi, Beth. So nice to speak to you today. Hi, Amanda. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I've been super excited to have you. I've been just waiting ever since you scheduled the time. And for me, there are lots of things that I found exciting about you. I think from the first time that I came across your profile, I already knew that you were not Southeast Asian. And I was so curious to see your story. Then the more that I looked across your LinkedIn, um, and now that I've researched a bit more about yourself, I think I got more and more curious. So super excited about this. And on top of all that, you're also a female founder and building in Vietnam. I think both are very, very exciting as well. I think for me, the first thing I really wanted to hear from you was, what was it like growing up? You grew up in New Mexico and you said that the most successful people in your community were doctors. So that's what influenced you to work in the space. But what was it like um, growing up? What were your parents doing and what did your childhood look like? Uh, yeah, so, so happy to talk about that. So um, growing up, I, I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. My parents are super hardworking people. And I think I definitely got values from the community that really valued um, yeah, like that hard kind of work. So my dad is a truck driver, so he worked for UPS pretty much his whole life um, before he retired. And then my mom, she had different types of jobs, but most were uh, somewhat related to, to healthcare throughout her own career. So um, she started out as a phlebotomist, drawing blood at different kind of hospitals. And um, I remember even when I was in kind of like middle school and high school, she would every once in a while take me to the, the hospital to just kind of go and see her work, um, meet the other nurses. And I just thought, oh, wow, these people are so cool. This is like this busy place. They're um, walking around helping people. 
and also New Mexico is a little bit economically depressed. Um, there's uh, not a lot of people that um, kind of go on to leave the state or kind of do different things. And the most successful people I'd ever seen were those doctors at the hospital. And I just thought how cool it was that they were able to come to work every single day and have a big impact in, in someone's life, um, sometimes like saving people's lives. And that drove me to study biochemistry for my undergrad. Um, I was the, the first person in my family to go to college at all, which was a, a big accomplishment. And then after that, several years later, I ended up getting my Master of Public Health over at Harvard. And I've been uh, working in, in public health ever since. And you mentioned that the most successful people in your community were doctors. And at that time, what did success look like? Was it that they were making an impact or was it something else? It was a little bit of everything. So um, when like they were financially pretty well off, right? They were well respected in their community, and it was also the impact. They walked through you know the corridors with importance because they had these skills and abilities to do something that other people couldn't, and help people in sometimes their greatest time of need. And um, yeah, that was why I saw them as the most successful. And how did you sort of go from thinking, okay, I think the most successful people here are doctors, I want to be one as well. How did you take the steps to get there? Did you study really hard? Um, did you try to get more involved since your mom was sort of in the space? Um, yeah, so I did. So my undergrad was kind of like a, a pre-med track. I even ended up taking the medical school admissions test, which was the MCAT, and I was completely ready to apply to medical school. But then I joined the Peace Corps. One, because I thought it would look good in a medical school application to have um, that volunteer experience. But two, I wanted to get out of New Mexico and to do something different and actually like work in healthcare for a little while before going on to medical school, which is a very long kind of, uh, you know, set route. Um, and so when I joined the Peace Corps, they sent me to Cambodia. And this was about 11 years ago at this point. And back in those days, you didn't get to choose what country you went to. So it was pretty much random. I'd never been to Asia. Um, knew where it was in the map, but not much else beyond that. And I worked at a small public clinic in the countryside, kind of near the Thai border in Batambang province. And that was where my perspective really shifted. Because I saw living in rural Cambodia that there were a lot of systemic issues that caused people to not have good health care that went beyond the presence of a doctor. So one of the examples that stands out to me is like the little kids getting sick often because there often wasn't really clean water. We would drink like well water, stuff kind of pumped up in through cisterns, usually not treated. And so you get all sorts of diarrheal and infections in your stomach. And when you have chronic infections, especially as a little kid, that impacts the amount of nutrients you can absorb. And so you can have shorter stature, you can have kind of cognitive impairments, um, you can have lifelong uh, repercussions based on the systemic factor that had nothing to do with, you know, a doctor being there, right? Or like another example would be that the roads during the rainy season, it was a dirt road. It was like that kind of red dirt that gets all over everything. Um, when it was rainy, um, it was really, really difficult to cross on a, a, a motorbike and parts of it would get pretty flooded. And so if you were in a car accident in the rain or had some sort of emergency and you needed to get to the provincial hospital, um, you were in pretty bad shape because you couldn't get across the street. And so these are all major public health issues. They touch on things like policies, the way that you know healthcare is is allocated, and they impact you know potentially millions onto billions of people. 
And by solving public health issues, um, that is the issues that affect like entire populations, you're able to have an even huger impact than what I saw like a, a medical doctor could. They're not mutually exclusive. A lot of like doctors are also public health professionals, um, which is a, a great kind of mix. But it was after that time in the Peace Corps that I changed routes and I, I wanted to go into public health. And I guess like after grad school then too, I also got exposed to all sorts of new ideas and people from different backgrounds. I got exposed to business people. I got to cross register over at the Harvard Business School, which is like, you know, sometimes infamous for being very, you know, profit oriented, you know, kind of hardcore in that way. But I found it completely fascinating because people had a very different view on the way that the world worked. People at the Kennedy School in, in policy and stuff. And so, yeah, I, I ended up meeting an entrepreneur while I was in grad school uh, named Farouk. He was the founder of a startup then called M Clinica, which is now called SwipeRx. After I graduated, I ended up joining his company because he had just raised a Series A round. And he wanted to expand from where he was in just uh, Philippines and Indonesia onto other countries throughout Southeast Asia. And so I was talking to Farouk and he says, well, you know, Cambodia, well, why don't you go and launch SwipeRx in Cambodia and we'll see how it goes. So it's like, okay, never worked in the private sector, <laughs> um, you know, kind of like first interesting public health related type of job. And yeah, launched the, the app for pharmacists and it took off very quickly. Um, within a very short period of time, thousands of pharmacists had downloaded it, were using it to share information and teach each other. And um, it was quite addicting because you see that you're able to have a big impact in a really short period of time. And, you know, prior to joining SwipeRx and, and working at a tech company, I worked in development. So there was those two years in Peace Corps and then I did some consulting in international development and it just moved so slow. Everything, you know, required like a policy dialogue and, you know, all these stakeholders to come together and you had all this money, but things never seemed to change versus with tech. Literally, in a matter of weeks or months, you could have thousands or tens of thousands of people changing behavior and using a new platform. And so, yeah, it was awesome. Then they wanted to expand to even more countries. So I moved next door to Vietnam. That's what brought me to Vietnam and launched SwipeRx here. Again, it did super well. And I also just saw that living in Vietnam, you have a very tech-savvy young population. You have fantastic 4G internet all over the place, even in the countryside, better than in some places in the US and Europe. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think they need to catch up on that. And you have a health system that wasn't quite serving its people, especially you know younger people who are so tech-savvy. It's still very old-fashioned, driven by world word-of-mouth recommendations. It's uh, very fragmented, difficult to find a provider. And then when you do find the provider, sometimes you have to wait in line for hours. You have short consultations, huge variations in quality between the different providers and no way to kind of tell who's good or bad before you, you get there. And I just thought this was crazy. So I ended up leaving my job at SwiperX to start DocuSign with the mission of making it effortless for anyone, no matter where they lived, to be able to get the right kind of healthcare uh, for their needs. And um, that's how DocuSign came about. It's great to hear your journey. I think, you know, when you were growing up, you mentioned that you didn't see a lot of people leaving New Mexico, but then you ended up leaving New Mexico. And once you actually got out, I feel like you ended up going so many places uh, you went to university, you're the first person in your family to do that. Then another first for you was um, going to Asia, yeah. then joining a startup for the first time after all of that. I feel like your life changed so dramatically. It but did. It I, I did. guess I was curious. So what made you take the initial leap to leave Mexico? Um, I wanted to do something different. I think I was bored and I was feeling very cooped up. 
um, I was excited to see a different part of the world and I was excited to help other people. I mean, the whole mission of the Peace Corps is to go and serve basically like the U.S. in another country and kind of like work in development. And all of those were really appealing kind of things. And it changed the course of my life because um, I found different types of opportunities, right? So I'm American. There's tons of people from all over the world that want to move to the U.S. to start a business, right? I think one of the really strong points of the U.S. is that they have all these immigrants that are starting businesses and can succeed over there and bring new ideas and knowledge from different places and translate that into cool businesses in the U.S. But I kind of found the opposite. So going from kind of like a, you know, a not as up and coming kind of like state, you know, kind of New Mexico is not the same as like California or New York, but then coming to Southeast Asia and just how quickly things are growing here, how you have this whole rising middle class. And then it's at this very interesting period in development too, because people can afford new things. Um, they want more convenience. They want higher quality. And the cost of starting a business too is, is a lot lower here. So hiring one Silicon Valley engineer would be like your entire like first year operating costs, you know, like uh, probably more than that, right? Versus in Vietnam, you can find there's there's so many great software engineers here. I'm surprised that there's not even more outsourcing going on <laughs> than there is already. Yeah, I get that a lot from so many people that Vietnamese engineers are so readily available. I think a Bloomberg article came out today talking about how there are lots of engineers in Vietnam and how Silicon Valley folks are going over there. But I guess you did it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that like pretty early on. What was it like in Cambodia, spending your time there and looking at the state in Cambodia versus what it's like in Vietnam, at least on the healthcare side? What are the differences and what, where are they the same? Yeah, good questions. Um, so I, I love Cambodia. It was kind of like what shaped my initial kind of like love of Southeast Asia and what made me want to stay in this region and, and do my career and business and everything here. So living there, it was a pretty unique experience because I lived in a small farming village. <laughs> so I didn't live in, you know, Phnom Penh and wasn't a part of, you know, the whole kind of expat scene. And I lived with a host family. I learned how to speak Khmer fluently because um, where I was, not a lot of people spoke English. And it just gave me a really different perspective. I got to see firsthand a lot of the issues that normal people have in accessing care and all sorts of other things and just develop like great friendships, understand, you know, the way that things work, the way that people operate, because, um, you know, some things are a little bit different from the States, some for better and some for worse. But in terms of the healthcare system, so I guess it's like somewhat similar. So there's a private sector and a public sector in Cambodia. Um, in Cambodia, the public hospitals and health centers tend to be a bit underfunded, a little bit more crowded. And something that is like very much in common, though, is the kind of negative incentives that having all these poorly paid public workers causes. So, for example, where I lived in Cambodia, the health center that I worked at was supposed to be open 24-7. But in reality, it was only open two hours a day because all of the doctors would come in in the morning, go and see a couple patients and then tell them, hey, come to my private clinic later because they had to work in their private clinics because their salaries, at the public clinics were so low. It's like similar to a garment worker salary, but like they've gone through medical school. They're extremely smart people. Right. They went back to the communities to serve, but, um, you know, they still have families and <laughs> need to make proper livelihood. And I see that same kind of pattern happening in Vietnam, as well as a lot of other emerging markets around, because it's just not sustainable for people who work in the public sector to have such low salaries. And so, yeah, that's another thing that they have in common. Um, of course, like in terms of development, 
I think like Vietnam is at a different stage than Cambodia. I think in terms of human capital, like, you know, the fact that you have all these tech people here is really great. You also have a lot of doctors in Vietnam who have studied abroad and come back, especially these kind of young doctors that then open their own clinics and can provide like fantastic care to their patients versus in, in Cambodia, that can be a little bit harder to find. So yeah, definitely different stages of development there. What was your day-to-day life volunteering in Cambodia? Yeah, so each morning I'd get up uh, pretty early, usually around like 6.30, 7 a.m. I would go and bike to the coffee shop. I wouldn't see my friends at the coffee shop. Usually there was like a group that would go and play Ok, which is like a chess, the Cambodian version of chess. It was slightly different. Then I would bike over to the health center, go and see patients in the morning. So as a public health person, my role was to do kind of like nutritional counseling, baby weighing, you know, kind of like participating in vaccine drives and stuff like that. But then the health center was only open two, two hours. <laughs> so for the rest of the day, I, you know, had to find some other kind of stuff to do. And so I would work with like the, the village health volunteers on some of their kind of public health campaigns. And I also worked on a, an agriculture project that helped link all of these kind of like small shareholder farmers to larger supply chains. So I ended up getting involved in agriculture a little bit too, because I mean, you have a lot of hours in the day and there's no internet. <laughs> like, what else are you going to do? And it was great. I got to be good friends. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot about like Cambodian culture, which is like, you know, amazing and beautiful. And uh, yeah, I, I really treasure that period of time. And I think um, also as an entrepreneur, it gave me this huge edge because sometimes as entrepreneurs, we can come from the ivory tower a little bit, you know, we, uh, sometimes wealthier backgrounds or, you know, very strong academic backgrounds because you need that, you need connections, you need capital to start businesses. But having that experience in, in getting to, you know, be in a normal area with normal people and normal friends and see firsthand what their issues are also really motivates me to change the way that things are because people deserve better healthcare than they're getting now. Okay, wow. I did not expect that answer. I see that you got to do a lot of different projects. So you sort of got to do a wide scope of things while you're in Vietnam. And I think that also is really interesting because maybe you didn't really know that much about agriculture and all these things, but regardless of not having internet, you still figured it out and you still learned so that you could still contribute. Yeah, for sure. Super interesting. Were there a lot of you guys there, like 30? Um, yeah, but they were in different places all around the country, right? So I was the only foreigner living in that village. So that's also a different kind of experience there. You know, you had to be a part of the local community. Otherwise, it'd be super lonely. <laughs> it's two years. It's pretty hard to, to survive that, you know, if you're, you're on your own or just in a bubble. Well, that's kind of an interesting observation, though, about like kind of starting something in a new industry because I didn't think about that. But it's like also like entrepreneurship is like that a little bit, too. You have to learn. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> you have to like, you know, do user testing, figure out what are people's pain points and problems and then how can I kind of solve it? And so regardless of whether it's, you know, some healthcare, which I actually know about and I'm passionate about. Um, but I just saw these issues with all these, um, you know, these farmers. And then, you know, I had a friend who had a kind of like local NGO and, you know, helped them get some grants to connect them to those other supply chains. And yeah, it, it worked out. It was interesting, but it's just all about problem solving. It's like mini startup training. I think, you know, when they say you're bootstrapping, you have minimal resources. I think you really took it to a new level. No <laughs> internet. I'm sure you didn't really have any funding to do all these things. Oh, for sure. And you obviously have no team, <laughs> except all of the other Cambodians. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you and your board friends. <laughs> I couldn't speak your language. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I had to learn it eventually, and you, right? And you learned to speak their language. Yep. 
Yeah, but I'm sure it was difficult to learn, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think like learning by immersion is the best way to do it because it's really sink or swim. Yeah, because in the Peace Corps, you get one month of language training and then they send you out to the countryside and it's pretty much like, all right, see you in two years, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so. When do you think you got the hang of the language? Um, it was a gradual process, um, but I would say probably like after six months, I started feeling like a lot more comfortable. And then that's also when you start having like, you know, just more friendships after kind of moving to a new place. I ended up getting a, yeah, a really nice group of, of friends over in the village that I lived in. And, you know, um, they're just really cool people. Like um, every once in a while we'd go on like, you know, little, little trips to other kind of small towns in the area. And like one of them had like a longan farm that we'd go to and like eat longans and then afterwards oh, we'd go and wow. eat, like drink beer and like, you know, like have like chicken soup and all this kind of stuff. It was super fun. What's your favorite memory from Cambodia? Oh, my favorite memory. There's, oh, there's a lot of good memories. Um, I would say like, rather than like a single memory that kind of stands out, I just, I really treasure my friendships in Cambodia and I'm still friends, um, like close friends with, you know, people there, but yeah, friend. Sreleak and Kim Lai and you know they've all gone on to do kind of interesting things and also my friends in the village um, now they've got 4G you know because tech took off faster oh, than wow, um, unfortunately running water in some of the, the remote parts so we can like 4G and <laughs> oh FaceTime my, my host family which is like pretty cool we'll see how they're doing that's so crazy 4G before running water do most of them have running water now or like at least clean water um, clean, Since you said yeah. a lot of it wasn't clean before. I mean, it's just wells, right? So if you're relying on well water, it's not like totally treated. And there's ways that you can have kind of like improved systems where if you, you do it in a safe place and, you know, you, you dig deep enough that the, um, I don't know, it's, it's pretty technically an engineer. <laughs> I learned a little bit about this <laughs> at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think they're, they're still using well water. So it just depends on where you are. And that's like one of the kind of things that I guess is not so great about some patterns of development in Southeast Asia is there is massive inequality. You have some people that are doing exceptionally well, right? And a lot of people that, and then you've got like Rolls Royce dealerships and stuff in Phnom Penh, which is great if you, you do a good business. But then if you go out a couple hours into the countryside, you know, some people might have sporadic electricity or, I mean, I, I was there in 2012 living there. I've gone back like, you know, since, but it was mostly before COVID. So yeah, I can't speak to the last couple of years. I, yeah. And then you went to grad school right after you finished with the Peace Corps? Yeah, exactly. So by that time, you sort of made your mind up that, okay, initially, I wanted to be a doctor, sort of an in individual contributor to make an impact. But at this point, you sort of shifted your mindset already, thinking that I had to be part of public policy to make a larger impact and help more people. Was that what you were thinking of at the time? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was um, more so than just like public policy, but just public health and the systemic causes of why people don't have good health. So I think I remember writing my admissions essay was um, like, because I, I lived with a bunch of rice farmers when I lived in Bovell in Cambodia. And it just kind of blows your mind because you have all of these extremely hardworking people. Rice farming is not easy. It's like intensive, pretty much year round work. And yeah, so some of the hardest working people in the world are also some of the poorest. And I'm like, having grown up in New Mexico, where hard work is like big value. And like, it's something that in the US, we've got this like hustle culture and just like work really hard. And, you know, success will come kind of like attitude sometimes. And I was like, 
what the heck? Like, how are you guys working so hard? But like, you know, you're still so poor. And I wanted to explore those kind of like systemic causes of poverty or health. And so um, that's what I wrote about. And my kind of like strange background then also helped me get into Harvard. <laughs> so I guess like if anyone wants advice around getting into Harvard is like do what you want, forge your own kind of like trail. And then, yeah, uh, I think because it, it stood out, right, because it was just a non-traditional kind of experience. And then while I was there, I, I, did, I did do the public policy kind of track at the School of Public Health. And it was actually kind of U.S. focused, which I found really interesting because like I was constantly drawing parallels to like what's happening in Southeast Asia and in the U.S. And so they talked about like lobbying and the way that, you know, um, like decision making works in politics, but also in different types of organizations. And yeah, that can apply to you no matter where you are. And I think like it is always interesting learning what kind of like techniques and things are going on in the U.S. because they, they tend to, you know, be pretty innovative in the, the way that they work systems. <laughs> but it was always my intention to come back to Southeast Asia as soon as possible. And at the time, what you wanted to solve was sort of the systemic problem. So changing the sort of infrastructure, the way things work. So that would mean laws it, or what other aspects? I'm not an expert. I think you yeah. are. So I want to hear about that. <laughs> well, I mean, I ended up finding it in a different kind of path, right? So initially what I thought was the right path was kind of like, okay, maybe it's public policy. Maybe it's development. Maybe it's working at one of these huge international aid organizations that, you know, has these big policy dialogues and brings stakeholders together from government and private sector and all of this, which is really great. They have enormous impact. But I found a, a different path in fixing a system in a, a different kind of way, which was through tech. And basically, it's my prax just like seeing how fast these things could take off and how quickly and disruptive they are. And also being just kind of like a, a young woman, too, I really liked that it was not so hierarchical in tech, right, as compared to development, which like you've got like tons of, you know, PhDs and, you know, very, very smart people working on it. But it takes so long, you know, to kind of get there versus like, of course, in tech, you have all these examples of people right out of college starting companies that have changed the world. And I think that's really amazing. And that was something that suited my personality because as interesting as kind of, you know, like politics and policy are, I think I'm not that great at it. <laughs> I'm great at kind of like getting stuff done. Right? <laughs> um, so yeah, entrepreneurship just suited me better. But through DocuSend, like we're changing the way that people get healthcare. We're connecting patients to doctors and different types of medical providers. And it's really addressing a health systems issue, which is fragmentation. It's the lack of information on where is a, a good doctor that I can go and get care. Like, what is the price? What do I expect? And yeah, just making it easier. So it's, it's solving a health systems problem through tech, which is also a really difficult thing to do because healthcare is different from a lot of other types of industries. And in that um, one, okay, like everyone knows, it's highly regulated. It moves slower. It deals with human life. But at the same time, um, it is a whole ecosystem. And usually the Silicon Valley playbook is just, okay, we will solve one highly specific kind of problem, scale it like crazy, and then, you know, gradually after that, like kind of like verticalize. Versus in healthcare, if you're doing, say, just like teleconsultations, it's not quite enough to solve the healthcare problem of the user. So, uh, yeah, you hop in an online consult with a doctor and the doctor says, well, okay, now you need some testing. So go ahead and come to my private clinic for testing. Then you're pissed off that you paid for the telemedicine call, right? Because then you still have to go offline and get something else for diagnostics or, okay, so here's your prescription. Now go to the pharmacy and get it. And you're like, okay, well, at least I got the prescription, but I still have to go to the pharmacy. Like, that's a pain. 
And so um, one of the things that we sought to resolve with Docuzen is like just the care delivery journey. So like through us, you can get diagnostics sometimes at home. And then you can have the online consultations with the whole network of doctors. And then you can get medicine sent to you by a local pharmacy. And DocuSign is the kind of software intermediary that helps connect patients to to deliver a seamless experience. Whereas before it was, okay, which doctor do I go to? I find and compare. Okay, now I go offline and wait in line for like four hours before I see the doctor. And then I have a bad experience anyway. So, yeah. I think those are all great points. Like, I think what I realized is that before you wanted to be in public policy where you could change the system and change the sort of infrastructure, right? But I think the process there is slow. You have to lobby, as you said. You have to work with so many people. But with tech, you can actually do the same thing and maybe arguably more effectively. And instead of slowly changing things, I think you're quickly disrupting everything instead. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as quick as healthcare can be. As you said, there are still regulations. Absolutely. Would you say it's like instead of working with the system, it's sort of building your own sort of new system or new way of doing things and finding a way to bridge those two, the current system and the way you're doing things? That's a good question because like the way that we approach it is like we're addressing fragmentation in the system. So we're not creating our own clinics, right? We're not there and directly competing with existing healthcare providers and competing with the doctors and competing with the labs. In fact, we don't employ a single doctor, nor do we have a you know a physical location beyond our office where we have some software engineers. And so like we are working with the system, but we're changing it, at least like in the front end, what the patient experiences to just make it seamless to be able to get the kind of medical care you need, whether it's offline, online, or at home. And so, yeah, I think that's like also one of the really strong points of the system, but also why it's much more difficult to build is like you still end up working with a lot of different stakeholders, right? You have to keep the doctors happy and engaged. And, you know, essentially our our business model works to, uh, we make money when they make money, right? So we want to send patients to, you know, good doctors that are offering good types of care. And then for the patient, you know, ultimately the the decision maker is in the most important part of the system. And so it's just making sure that, you know, they know what to expect in terms of where they're going, what's happening, the aftercare, because right now there's might be no explanations given to a patient, right? So if you go and have a two minute consultation with a doctor and he or she gives you a prescription and then you're kind of out there and out of there and you're like, okay, now what do I do? What happened? Like, am I supposed to take this for two weeks or, (laughs) you know, am I supposed to get testing or follow up or do I come back? confusing um, for the patient and actually like one of the biggest complaints that we hear from patients is like there was no explanation what was I supposed to do after the consultation and so yeah with our digital system we want to resolve that problem and, and let people just get the care they need without having to worry about the health system. I think one question I have is like when you typically hear about healthcare in developing markets people say like okay we need it to be cheaper we need it to be better quality uh, we need it to be more accessible I think the part that makes it accessible is pretty easy to understand from DocuSan. You can just head to the website, right? But since you're working with the system itself, and not to try to put you on the hot seat, but like, how do you also sort of make the cost lower and the quality higher? In my experience, I can go to a doctor, get a teleconsultation, and then, as you said, she'll probably or he'll probably tell me something like, okay, this is what I can tell about your condition. 
but I'm not sure. Why don't you come to my clinic in person? <laughs> yeah. So how do you sort of make the journey cheaper? Is it cheaper because everything is connected in the platform? Well, the first layer is around transparency. Um, so there's not going to be kind of like hidden costs when you go to a specific clinic. My colleague Duke was just telling me his friend went to a public hospital, and you know he thought the consultation price was going to be about 200k, which is about eight US dollars. So he goes and he's expecting to pay eight US dollars, but by the end of the thing, he ends up paying eight million, which is like 400 under 400 US dollars because they also did you know kind of like testing, and then he had to go somewhere else. All this stuff got added on top of it, and he was just like what the heck, this is not what I was expecting, <laughs> right? Versus like, if yeah. you're going and getting care through a private provider in Dokusan, you see the prices up front, right? You can see the price list, things should be explained to you. And if something, you know, you're not happy about goes wrong, you can leave a negative review. This is also kind of like empowering the patients. And so, and, and keeping people in check too, like um, that kind of behavior of just adding on a bunch of stuff and, and hiding the price is, yeah, hopefully not sustainable in the long run if people um, hear about that being the norm, wherever that practice is. And so that's one way of kind of like improving access and also like lowering prices is just, okay, if you have price transparency, then you reduce some of that kind of behavior. And then the second way is through our managed care packages. So Docosan has a product line called Docosan Cares, and these are treatment packages uh, around specific therapeutic areas. And so some of our best-selling ones are around sexually transmitted diseases, which was a surprise to all of us. We didn't go in and think like, hey, STD packages, those will sell really well. We just kind of saw it like people were searching for STDs a lot. All of our blogs around STDs would get like a lot of traffic. And we're like, huh, people are really looking for kind of like care around sexual health online. And so we created these STD packages in which you can get self-testing materials. So it can be like a rapid test device. So in the case of like HIV and syphilis, there's a little rapid test that looks very similar to a COVID test that you can just do in your kitchen. You prick your finger, put a drop of blood, and then within 15 minutes, you get your results. So those have been on the market for like over a decade. It's not new tech, but um, just it wasn't accessible to, to most people who didn't know about it. Then we also include sample collection methods. So you can take a urine collection cup. There's detailed instructions on how to collect your sample. You put it in the, the prepaid envelope that gets sent to one of our partner clinics or laboratory facilities. They do the analysis. Then we send the results to the patient on their phone. Then they can hop in an online consult with one of the doctors on the network to kind of explain their, their results. If they have a positive test result, we say don't panic. You know, the doctor can write a prescription. We can get the, because you already had the diagnosis, you can get the right prescription for your needs. Doctor prescribes it. And then we work with a local pharmacy to get the medicine sent to your doorstep. And you don't have to, with a nurse or have awkward conversations with anyone. So it reduces that stigma. But importantly, it reduces costs because we cut out the need for physical infrastructure for ourselves. So Docosan can sell uh, medical devices. We've got a medical device distribution license. And so if you think about like the HIV syphilis rapid test, that's a medical device. So is a urine collection cup. These things are not super expensive. Then we send it to a laboratory. And because we have a ton of customers, we can negotiate good B2B rates and get cheap prices on the analysis. And then because we have a huge network of doctors, we can negotiate good prices with them to get um, cheap online consultations. And we also don't employ any doctors. So we don't have any kind of like fixed costs of maintaining a clinic, um, hiring them, paying salaries, especially of like specialist doctors, like an infectious disease specialist doctor, right, to, to be able to hop on there. You know, instead, we have like a, a set rate that we negotiate with our providers and they're, they're happy. They get a patient. They get to, you know, help someone quickly. And then we take care of the rest of the care journey. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely able to, to cut costs 
Um, so one, transparency. Two, is through those managed care packages that um, deliver care direct to the patients. Okay, that's awesome. I think one thing I, I realized while hearing from you is that, you know, when you're a patient and you're in such a fragmented system, and I've sort of experienced it myself um, in some ways, like you go to the doctor, they tell you to do something or buy something. It's so easy to go and not buy the thing or buy the cheaper version or the more expensive version, because sometimes we feel like we can be our own doctors or we feel like, you know, we should ask a second opinion and then we end up not doing it, right? But having it under the platform, I guess, sort of influences the patient or sort of keeps the patient accountable as well to like tell themselves, okay, I do have to do this or I do have to take this. And have you been seeing this um, yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. And it's giving them options too, right? So you don't have to, you know, get the medicines fulfilled through DocuSign, right? You can go and take your prescription to a pharmacy if you right. find the, the price cheaper. Um, you won't because we work with <laughs> all the larger like retail pharmacies. But, you know, like we, we do our best to keep everything as cheap as possible for the patients. But um, it's ultimately their decision, right? And I love the idea of patients being empowered enough to choose, um, yeah, what's acceptable to them. Like, you know, do they, do they want to do testing at this period of time or not? Or in the future, one thing that really excites me is the whole idea of kind of like preventive self-care. Um, something that I see in the U.S. that's going on a lot is um, these these companies in which you can do kind of like routine blood testing to monitor your like vitamin and nutrition levels and see how that's going. And then you test again three months later and like, you know, they, they sell you supplements and you can kind of like optimize your health. Maybe you've seen that whole um, thing that's going viral now on like Twitter and everywhere else about Brian Johnson, who's spending two million a year to <laughs> uh, reduce his, yeah. his age to 18 years old. Right. And then you've got all these people using like wearables right. and trackables and monitoring, you know, their sleep and, you know, doing blood tests. I, I think it's awesome. I, I would love for people in emerging markets to, to, you know, have a little bit of that preventive care. Because when you think about the preventive care system, it is like pretty insane that, okay, maybe just like once a year you go and you have an, a, a consultation with the doctor and he's like, how are you feeling? Good. You're all healthy. Good. Okay, great. I'll see you next year. Really rolling the dice with your health. Yeah. <laughs> right? tracking and monitoring a lot of stuff right and um especially as these these um these countries have you know kind of like well-educated younger people as well as like increasingly wealthy people across um demographic profiles i think this kind of thing becomes more and more appealing so i think you also get access to a lot of information right like do you get to see who actually ends up going through the whole process and not dropping off like actually being able to improve their health um and maybe even get to see like the sorts of conditions where you see people actually getting um, the complete set of treatment because they they purchase it hopefully all on DocuSign, right? Yeah, so we don't track any individual patient information um, that is only accessible to the patient themselves and their doctor and if they use the medical concierge service. But we do get statistics and we can see kind of trends and we can create funnels too and kind of see like, okay, so how many people, you know, are coming to the site? How many end up making a booking? How many, you know, make a repeat booking? How many come to the, you know, DocuSign Cares, you know, packages site? I purchase something and then how many of those then go on to purchase, you know, um, like medicines or supplements through us. So we can see that in, in aggregate. And of course, um, we've got a, a great like product and, and, and growth team too. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, constantly looking at those funnels. We're changing things um, to, to continually make it better and easier um, for patients to get the kind of care that they want and also working on scaling it up too. Because, um, yeah, it, it, it takes a while to get, you know, thousands of doctors onboarded and, you know, like hundreds of thousands of patients using yeah. the platform, which which we now have. But 
yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, there's always room to grow. As you mentioned earlier, like the healthcare space is such a difficult space to be in. So what have been the hardest times in the process of building Dokusan? That could be in the recent days or in the early days or both. Yeah, so I guess in terms of hard times, it's it, it changes um, depending on <laughs> where you are kind of like in your journey. And so I think like, yeah, um, with us, maybe after we kind of like first launch, you have that like massive anxiety of like, okay, we just built this product. Are we going to get any users? Oh my God. And you get the first user and you're like, okay, this is amazing. <laughs> like, you know, something will happen. And you get the first <laughs> 10 users. You're like, okay, we can, we can actually like grow something first, you know, hundred users, but then you start getting issues every single step, right? Like, okay, maybe we have a doctor who doesn't like this particular thing or like one patient who was unhappy with a doctor and, you know, and then you kind of like have those and you gradually have to keep solving those kind of operational issues and iterating until you have something that people really like and want to continue to use. And I think it's like a process. I think you have to look at it every single day. Um, and I think also you also have to build a team that can do it and is um, you know passionate in wanting to solve these issues in, in their countries too. And that's um, there's been a lot of like um, things we've learned about like team building and training and really finding the, the, the right kind of people for the job because, um, yeah, I guess like kind of the way that like a, an American tech startup works is a little bit different from, you know, how a lot of kind of traditional Vietnamese companies work. Like Vietnam is a, a bit of a manufacturing hub. And so if you hire general kind of like, you know, salespeople or, you know, admin back office, they, they come from more of like a factory kind of model. And they're used to having things be exact. And this is exactly how you do it. And the boss tells me exactly what to do and then I'll do it. And if the boss isn't telling yeah. me exactly what to do, then why are you asking me to do that? <laughs> You know, um, and so we've, we've had some like learnings uh, around that and how to provide like enough clarity at the same time as kind of like empowering the teams to, you know, gradually, you know, take over things themselves and figure things out. And um, yeah, but it's it's a process the same way that, you know, changing your product, changing, you know, you're your, adopting your business model. You're also doing the same with the team and there's going to be highs and lows and every single one of those. <laughs> so. And speaking of teams, you have an all-female founding team. How did that happen? Was that on purpose or did it that was just not naturally on purpose. happen? No, it was just natural. So was, I'm not in the business of like, you know, making any sort of like social experiment or anything. But as an entrepreneur, you want to have the smartest people around you and the most hardest, hardworking people around you. And the smartest and most hardest hardworking people around me were other women, coincidentally. Um, and so, of course, that's like who we, we did the business with. And I think like um, it also just, yeah, you find it, you can relate to each other. Um, sometimes the different kind of like struggles and stuff that you've like been through. And uh, yeah, and I think it's like a big advantage to um, having a, a female founding team and a lot of um, you know very strong female managers because the majority of our users are women. And when you look at healthcare, um, women are the decision makers for their families, not only for their own healthcare, but, you know, for like their kids, for, um, you know, their grandparents and stuff like that. And so um, really understanding other women uh, in, in their pain points um, ultimately, I think, gives us an edge. That's so true. I realize that in all of the healthcare situations that I hear about, it's always somebody being urged by their mom or somebody's <laughs> yes. mom or during their grandparents. Moms run or, the world, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even if it's not a mom, I feel like it's also the daughters in that sense. Like um, some of my friends would tell me how they would urge their grandparents or their parents to go to the doctor. And 
even on social media, that's the predominant thing. Like just the other day, I was reading a bunch of tweet threads about healthcare for some reason. And um, it was a lot of female accounts talking about how they would try to urge their relatives to um, get proper healthcare treatment. And then they would comment that their sort of grandparents or parents all wanted to go the all natural route. And I also observed uh, that day that it was a lot of women who were sort of talking about their experience, urging their family to not go all natural. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, on that note, I think Asia is pretty traditional. There is this prevalence of like traditional uh, medicine. I have personally tried, um, you know, Eastern medicine myself. I don't know what it's like in Vietnam. I've never been. Um, But you also see that um, in practice, like people wanting to do, maybe there's traditional Vietnamese healthcare, Eastern healthcare. Yeah, there is. And we've got uh, traditional medicine doctors on our network too. And um, especially in the North, it's it's really popular. Um, I think TCM can have an awesome role in a healthcare system because it, it gets people into the clinic thinking about their health. It tends to be more affordable. Um, the doctor will spend more time with you, talking to you. Um, and I think it can, yeah, a lot of this stuff can have benefits. Um, so, and the, the Vietnamese government also encourages the development of the TCM um, sector in the country. I think like the thing to kind of watch out for and what people are conscientious of is that um, sometimes the the medicines that are uh, manufactured and sold here um, are not of the highest quality. And so there's like a little bit of a way for the industry to go in terms of the medicines. But um, some of the doctors themselves also have like their own kind of like gardens and grow their own um, like plants oh, that they wow. use. Yeah, like we uh, we have one uh, one doctor in the north um, called a, a Nguyen Xuan Yao. Uh, and he's a, 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 they call it Long E. So that means he's got over 30 years of traditional medicine experience. And he also sells his own medicines. And um, he and his son run their uh, TCM clinic up there. And yeah, they, they see all sorts of people. We even have like foreigners who want to go and try like traditional Vietnamese medicine, <laughs> which I think is awesome. Okay. I actually am curious to try that when I go there, because I think uh, in my personal experience, like I've had relatives who have done like those annual physical checkups. The ones that do all the checking, like whatever problems you have in your health, they've, they've told you all about them. And then he went to a traditional Chinese doctor, like the weekend after. And that guy just like did his, you know, usual observations, like check your tongue, check your eyes. And after that, he said the exact same thing, the annual physical checkup said, which blew all of our minds. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Well, when Is you that come, a if, similar experience on your end? <laughs> I, I, for, for me, I've never gone to one in Vietnam. I've gone in, in, in Cambodia, but um, yeah, like <laughs> I should. Um, maybe, uh, are, are you going to go to Hanoi when you come to Vietnam? I don't know when I will go, but I hope so um, sometime this year. So maybe I'll go to Hanoi, maybe I'll go to Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> I will let you know regardless. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll both have to, to check out that clinic. <laughs> so they're bilingual. Yes, and I want to check the garden too. <laughs> For sure. Super curious. And I, I think one other thing I wanted to ask you about was, what was it like going from an operator to, to being a founder? What have been the hardest transitions for you in that end? Because for me, I was also sort of an operator um, and then I became a founder. Though I think it's different in your experience because you've been an operator for years and you're also much more experienced than me, so I'm sure your struggles are different. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like, it's a big transition because as an operator, you kind of have a specific role. And even my role, like when I was at SwiperX was pretty general, right? Like I was like, okay, go to um, a new country and kind of like start the, you know, the app there, which was doing all sorts of creative stuff. But I think I didn't realize like how much you have to do as an entrepreneur, like from like starting your business and like, um, you know, like navigating the legal system, dealing with admin, then hiring, like, um, but like hiring for your, your whole company, then doing sales and marketing and product and tech, you know, like is when in the very early stages, you literally, you have to do everything as a founder. There's, there, you, you can't even outsource it. You try to outsource it. Like they're not going to know what the heck you're trying to do. Right. And so you have to be so hands on and you have to be detail oriented and you have to learn extremely quickly as well. And so, yeah, there, there are several books that I think like recently have, have, have helped me. Um, and they were recommended to me from other founders who had gone on to like actually make some unicorn companies. But one is the great uh, CEO within by uh, Matt, I want to say Mochery was like a, a really good overview of what like a founder and, and, and CEO of a company should be working on and how to kind of like go about learning all of the different kind of like um, divisions that happens because it's one thing to kind of be okay like market launcher and then you can kind of you know I, I didn't have to develop a product from scratch at SwiperX the product already existed um, versus here you know the product didn't exist the business model didn't exist the you know like the legal you know system and everything like we had to figure out um, from scratch so yeah I mean it's it's very hardcore it's very very hardcore but um, for some type of people and I think I'm one of these type of people and there's nothing else like it I am so happy doing what I do and I, I couldn't see myself doing anything else I think for me, one of the biggest surprises moving from an operator to a founder was like the weight of like the stress that that it is to be a founder. Like I think, you know, when you're working at a company um, and you're doing sort of scrappy things, even as a, for example, a market launcher, you still would never have the stress of a founder. And I didn't realize that until I was a founder itself, like how heavy that was um, and how much you think about the work and everything, even when you're not at work and on the weekends. Oh, absolutely. No, the, the level of responsibility is so different. And I think like you can't understand it unless you have been a founder yourself. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> kind of indescribable amount of responsibility, but it's also really cool because like um, you were getting to make a change in the world um, directed exactly from you, right? It's a tremendous privilege to be able to create something um, and do it exactly how you want to do it. Um, so uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing else like it, but yeah, tremendous amounts of stress, low pay. I mean, it's not for everyone. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned that you get together once in a while with other female founders, um, just to speak, what do you guys usually talk about? Yeah. So, I mean, like we, we talk about all sorts of things. So we share, um, advice on kind of like different ops issues that we're dealing with, like around, like, you know, kind of like HR, like, Hey, we have to hire a bunch of sales reps this month. Like, what are you guys doing? Like, what is your, you know, like, um, comp structure? How, how is that working? You know, so that's like one kind of thing. Um, complaining about fundraising is another like <laughs> big topic because, um, <laughs> I mean, like, as you can see in, in the news and everything else, like, um, female founders receive an absolutely shameful, um, per, uh, percentage of all venture uh, financing in Southeast Asia, just 0.6%. Um, in the U.S., it's less than 2%. But it's like, man, that is that is crazy because you have all these brilliant women 
um, that are starting businesses and they just get totally overlooked. And I think like Vietnam is an interesting place to look for female founders as well, because um, almost a third of all businesses here are owned by women. Um, it's one of the highest in the in the world. It's more oh, wow. than Switzerland, right? I would never um, knew that. Yeah, you have a lot of like very very badass women here, like uh, <laughs> owning things and doing things. Um, but yeah, not a lot of funding though. I think it would be it would be better if people needed to take a look inside and like why that's happening. But do you know why there are so many female entrepreneurs? Is there something in the culture? Um, yeah, I've had like d- different theories. People have told me like um, one of my friends and, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. I don't know what it is. You, you can ask like different, you know, Vietnamese people to get their their perspective. So I just just parroting what my friend said. Um, but she says like, oh, yeah, like, um, you know, there was periods of long periods of, of war in Vietnam. And so the men were always out fighting. And so the women had to kind of do everything while they were out fighting. And so like there are like 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 you know, remnants of, of that culture left that. Yeah, I don't know the exact like culture and history. That's just what I heard. So they had to make ends meet. Yeah, and I mean, you see it like, <laughs> like um, the women. Yeah, also Vietnamese women are awesome managers and leaders. <laughs> so, okay, super interesting. I hope if anybody has any other theories, they send it to us. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> curious to hear what other people think. I want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And what does your day to day look like? I know there's probably no typical day, but. Could you give me an example of one day in your life, not just at work, but what does your day look like in general? Yeah. So recently I've been um, trying this new time management thing where I block off two hours in my calendar to work on on uh, one specific kind of goal that I think would move the company the most. And so um, most of the, the, the time that's like in the mornings when I kind of like think the best um, and I'm focusing around sales and sales op- ops because we have very aggressive growth targets in terms of um, growing our provider network and, um, you know, revenues and all sorts of stuff like that. So start out like thinking about this, like one problem and everything I can do to kind of like fix that. And then later I have um, different meetings with um, different teams. So we might have a, a marketing meeting one day and they'll report on their metrics and what's going well and what's not. Um, I have like one-on-one meetings with uh, the particular managers and yeah, sometimes like I go in, uh, go to like hospitals or to meet with like specific um, like partners. Like if there's um, like a really strategic account that um, the team wants help in closing or negotiating a contract with. I also love getting involved with this because I love talking to customers and um, kind of understanding what are they thinking? What are their pain points? Or like, why is this not working for you? Or what, what, what isn't? And so, yeah, I would say like it's a, a little bit of everything, um, but those are the, the kind of main things that I focus on um, for now. There's also different periods of time, too. And so like as a CEO, you'll go into a fundraising period where like 80, 90 percent of your time is just on fundraising, which um, is a sales process, which is like kind of interesting. But then um, it's sometimes a little less fun. I enjoy talking to customers, um, but um, yeah. What would your advice be to other um, founders who are either female or in the healthcare space um, who want a little help or want to improve their uh, fundraising strategy? What have you learned in your process that you can maybe share? Yeah, I think like one is like a fundraising is a sales process and you should treat it as such. And so um, like you wouldn't stand on, you know, the corner of like a, you know, busy kind of street and just hand out flyers and expect, you know, to find someone who's going to like invest in your company. Right. And so like each stage kind of like make them work for more data that you send. I don't know if it's just in 
this region, but there's been a lot of like, um, yeah, like uh, VCs in particular that have said, yeah, send me tons and tons of data. And then they just like end up ghosting you. And so I learned that like kind of like early on, okay, it's like, no, 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 don't send a lot of information. Make sure that they're actually like a serious <laughs> kind of person that's not just doing research. Make sure that you're talking to the, the right person at the, the firm, which should be a partner. Um, and, you know, don't waste your time with people who are just doing research or trying to hit their own kind of internal KPIs because you also are running a business. We're very busy, you know, um, protect your time as well. Um, and so it's just kind of like, you know, the qualification process. Um, do some research on the uh, onset too. So don't just pitch to everyone because a lot of people, um, like their, their funds don't invest at companies at your stage or they don't invest in your sector or, you know, whatever else. Um, so do your research to find some that are of the, the, uh, the, the right kind of, um, I guess like persona, uh, uh, for investing in you and then, um, volume and, uh, uh, volume and kind of like density of meetings too. So you want to have a high volume of, of meetings. And so when I've talked to other successful founders that could be talking to more than a hundred VCs in a single fundraise, right. And you're going to hear no a lot, <laughs> right. And just like psychologically prepare for that. That's okay. Everyone goes through that. Um, and uh, yeah, and then um, just have those meetings kind of as close to each other as possible, because then they're all talking to each other. Um, they'll hear, you know, something interesting or good. And then VCs always follow each other, too. So, um, you know, if, if someone comes in and they like it, sometimes you just need one yes, and then the entire round can come together, right? So um, that would be my generic kind of fundraising advice. But yeah, I think it for a lot of people in like it, it kind of sucks and there's no way around it. And you spend a lot of time doing it. Um, but I think hopefully over time you get better and better. And um, yeah, you, you hear no, but like ultimately you're there to build your company. You're, and you will, as an entrepreneur will do whatever it takes to make your company a success. And that's a, that's a part of it. So, and especially in the earlier stages, those investors want to know who you are. You can't outsource fundraising too, because um, a big part of it is your own vision. And are you the person who's going to be the one to be able to pull it off? And so um, there's also like the kind of like personal angle that matters as well. So um, yeah, that's, that's what I have to say. <laughs> I think, I've heard from a lot of different founders that the fundraising process takes a big personal toll on you. And sometimes it can even mean like the life or death of your company. So what are the ways you sort of help manage those emotions or feelings on your own as you were going through that fundraising process? Were there certain things yeah. you tried to do or certain things you tried to think about? You need to take care of yourself. Um, that's like the, the, the first kind of thing, um, you have to, if you're not sleeping well, um, that's like the first thing that I would try to fix. If you're having anxiety and waking up in the middle of the night, check out like, um, there's a really interesting podcast now, um, called like the Huberman lab. It's, um, by this, uh, like St Stanford, um, kind of like neuroscientist professor. And he talks about all these different ways of like optimizing your sleep over the counter supplements and, and kind of like protocols and things that you can do to kind of like take charge of your sleep. And that was something that helped me immensely because like my entire life I've been like a very crappy sleeper and I've like always had like insomnia and waking up in the middle of the night. And then I made some kind of like lifestyle changes. Um, like I got a blackout curtain was a big one. Um, and, and then I started taking, um, certain types of supplements that are non-addictive. Like, so like GABA is one, um, and glycine is another, just like over the counter kind of like supplement that I take at night and really helps me. And I don't get up in the middle of the night with like anxiety about, you know, certain things. And so anyway, they're, they're, fix your sleep first. 
then um, after that kind of comes like physical exercise and it can be so hard to do because you're stressed and there's a million different things and like you're angry, but like you won't perform at your best unless your, your body is okay too. Right. And so even if it's just a walk in the morning, just, just go on the treadmill for 30 minutes, listen to a fun podcast or whatever, and then you, it, it will have like physiological benefits for you. Um, and then kind of like take care of certain lifestyle factors. So if you're like, you know, drinking too much or, you know, um, and it, it can be like really tough, just kind of like be conscientious of that and see what you can do to, um, uh, to, to kind of like decrease that because it has, um, effects that it it doesn't help you in the long run. It makes you more stressed and more tired. And, and, um, yeah, I, I would say one, take care of yourself and then two, um, find a community. Um, and so that community can be like in your family, if you have like a very supportive um, family member. So my husband is like wonderful. He's gone through like, he's heard all of my rants and screaming and all this kind of stuff from like, you know, the hard times <laughs> that has come. And so like very blessed to have such a, a wonderful husband. And then also friends, right? So I told you about that female founder group where you can just go around people who like you don't judge you and can understand you a little bit. So find that community and, you know, bonus if they're, I think other founders are the most awesome people because they understand what you've gone through. And they've also been humbled because being a founder is so effing hard, right? Like sometimes you talk about um, some of the issues that you have and it can be easy for others to be judgmental and be like, oh, well, maybe you're just a, you know, crappy manager. Maybe you should have done this better. Okay. Yeah. But like try doing a million things at once. Um, other founders get it. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, just having a good community that can support you. And then another benefit of being friends with a lot of founders too, is like, um, they're also the best source of introductions to VCs later. You, you, you can get referrals to them. Um, so yeah, I would say take care of yourself and then have a, a good community and support system. And that's how you get through it. But there's no, there's no way around it. There's just times that are going to be stressful. And so you just kind of have to optimize yourself, um, around being able to to deal with that stress. And I think the last thing I want to ask um, is a question that I ask everybody I speak to for one more scoop. And it's, um, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life that doesn't have to be something you need to achieve this month, this year, or anything like that? Um, it could even be at some point in your life at any random point. Um, but what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? Ah, good question. So I guess in my personal life, I really enjoy boxing. So I do boxing um, in, in, in the mornings. Um, and I just find it very like kind of like cathartic. And it's like one of those things also like helps you kind of like physically. And I think there's something about like punching something that really helps with the stress release. But I think it'd be really <laughs> cool to do kind of like, um, yeah, maybe at some point, like a very gentle kind of like, you know, like boxing match or something <laughs> like that. Maybe that'd be fun. Okay, that's actually super cool. <laughs> I might try out boxing now. Oh, it's I've been so thinking good. about it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's so good for kind of, and it, it's very technical too. Um, so it, it keeps your mind busy because you have to, yeah, like, um, like there's all this like footwork and the, the way that you hold yourself kind of like counterintuitively and um, a lot of things that go on behind the scenes today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. <laughs> I'm on the fence between Pilates and boxing, but I hope that at some point in the next two months, I'll pick one. And it's saying this on the podcast is going to keep me accountable. <laughs> awesome. You should definitely do it. <laughs> and now you're also held accountable for your boxing ring match. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, thanks, Amanda. <laughs> Another thing to list. <laughs> I really enjoyed, um, you know, asking you all those questions, getting to speak with you. I feel like um, I have a lot of mental notes that I took. And I feel like other people also have a lot of mental notes that they took. 
and a lot of value that they can get, like apart from getting into Harvard, um, technical tips for founders as well. I, I hope so. I think like, um, I, uh, yeah, entrepreneurship is like this, this kind of like crazy thing to do. Like you're, you're taking a lot of risks, um, not only with your, your own finances, but with, you know, all of the immense amount of like stress and kind of, um, really pushing yourself to the limits, but there's nothing like it. And if you have an idea or an insight that, um, other people don't have, and you're willing to dedicate that much to it, man, you should absolutely go for it. And like, don't be, don't let anyone tell you no. Right. Like, I mean, I feel like a lot of my life, people are kind of like, what are you doing? Like, what are you in Vietnam? Like, when are you going home? Or like, it's like, man, I am home. You know, all this kind of stuff. Like people can always judge <laughs> you. you. They can home? always, <laughs> uh, the most annoying question. Um, I've but been they, gone for, the, for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I am home, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. But um, there's always going to be someone that has something negative to say. Right. And so like, yeah, don't listen to the haters. They suck. <laughs> Just keep building, do awesome stuff. Well, thank you so much for the time, Beth. It was really wonderful hearing all of this from you. And I'm sure I'll listen to this again, <laughs> um, even after speaking to you. <laughs> well, it was awesome to talk to you, Amanda. And thanks again for having me on your podcast. So huge fan of that scoop. If you're enjoying this podcast, check out Backscoop. It's our free daily newsletter that makes it fun, quick, and easy to stay updated with the latest news in Southeast Asian startups. You'll be in good company. Thousands of leading founders, executives, investors, and startup operators in Southeast Asia are already reading. Subscribe for free on www.backscoop.com or in the link in our description below.